Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures brought to you by CME Group and the Managed Funds Association, where I continue my conversation with Stephen Wilson, who is a senior portfolio manager in the Public Markets Group at the Teacher Retirement System of Texas, Trent Webster, who is the senior investment officer, strategic investments for the State Board of Administration of Florida, as well as Jake Barton, who is a senior portfolio manager at Promus Capital, which is a multifamily investment firm. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I want to bring you back in, Jake, but I want to shift sort of the topic a little bit, but but still relating to this. And that is kind of the, you know, investment theory versus data. I mean, when do you know, you know, if you're wrong? So I'm sure within your teams, you rely on a certain amount of investment theory in your investment decisions. But I'm also sure that there are times where you want to say, you know, if the data don't support the theory, the data must be wrong. How do you go about deciding when to rely on the data and when to the, to stick to the theory? That's a very good question. I need, I need to think about it for a little bit. <laughs> and and one of the nice things is there is more and more data available now. I mean, I think data was one of the things that could be your proprietary edge for, for a while. And, and really, when you think about when I hear CTAs, I think about alpha. I th- even hedge funds, you see, if you hear hedge funds, you think, what, what is the alpha that they're going after? And a lot of times that alpha was having proprietary access to inefficient markets or having, having data that revealed where the inefficiencies were. And so that data was the edge. And we've had you know, a fair amount of regulation on the financial industry over the last 10 years that has made the dissemination of information a lot more normalized, a lot more pre, you know, sort of pre-populated and standardized. And so I think now it's tougher to find. There's a lot more data in some ways, but then there, but there's also a lot less interesting information to, that's differentiated. When I'm thinking about, let's say, hedge funds on like public stocks and so forth, I mean, everybody has access to the same information there. Whereas maybe there's a little more dispersion you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, so data has come into play for sure, and I think you, I think. Data will always challenge the theory. The theory, no theory works if it's wrong financially, right? I mean, you can have the greatest theory in the world, and if you just keep losing money for your clients, you, you have to throw in the towel, or the money will all disappear, whether it, it disappears organically or they everyone just leaves and pulls their money out. So to me, there there's a balance there. I think if you want to just 
generate market returns, if you just want to generate the benchmark, if you want to generate the index, you don't need too much theory. You just invest. If you want to get ahead of that, I think there, there has to be a theory behind mm -hmm. that. So if we're all looking just to be the status quo, then you don't need to have a theory. If you want to beat that, you do need a theory. But if your theory is continually contradicted by the data, then, you're, then you need to formulate a new theory. Yeah. That's probably how I would look at it. Trent, how do you balance theory versus the data that comes back? Well, I'm an empiricist and not a theorist. So we use the theory to back, or the theory backs up the empirical. And so for us, you know, obviously, you know, we talked about this earlier, that there's all sorts of theories in academia, which I do not believe to be true. And I'm a pragmatic empiricist. And if the data supports what we think is right, and we will go through with that, if the data says we're wrong, then we'll change our minds. Because in the end, I've always thought, in the end, I'll, I'll make anyone a deal. I'll always admit you're right if I can have the money, right? So, okay, you're absolutely right, sir, Mr. Academic. Markets aren't efficient, but I found a way to make money. I'll take the money. So for us, it, it's very much a pragmatic, empirical exercise. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe I'll try and take a different crack at this question because I don't generally disagree with anything that's been said. We, we tend, our, our philosophy tends to be, let's gather as much data as we can and let's understand you know, what data is important and which data is not. And most importantly, when do you interject to apply human judgment to a decision, right? So a lot of decisions could get made automatically, but there's certain times where you need to decide, I need to step in and add context to this that uh, the, the data can't or a computer can't or whatever. So we have a number of risk signals and things like that that say, look, something's going on with this manager, its returns are outside of a certain profile, you need to spend some time understanding the context behind what's happening. And a lot of times we'll say, nope, everything's fine. We understand why certain things are happening. The data support this conclusion or that conclusion. And other times, you know, we'll say, okay, this the data is speaking to us in a way that we know that something is highly unusual here and we need to do something about it. So I think Knowing and having a strong foundation in math and statistics and, and, and all of that is highly important, but then not losing sight of the ability of the human mind to add context to any data that you are bringing in. I mean, you kind of anticipated my next question because I did want to try and apply it in, in practice to sort of the manager selection side. If a manager is going through a tough time and, and obviously in this, as we've talked about in the CTA space, there's been plenty of examples of that in the last few years. I mean, how do you go about kind of specifically deciding whether the manager is still delivering what should be to be expected? Yeah, Trent and Stephen kind of touched on touched yeah. on this already, and I think you know the data and the theory really do can be married together if you have a very robust selection and investment committee and process, and you spell out what what it is. You know why why are you investing in this asset class? Why have you chosen this manager? What are you ex expecting? How have they performed historically? What are they saying? Their the future prospects look like in the current market environment? How they're trading, etc. So you. If you have a very robust process, then you can create a band of expectations that you're that you're looking for from that manager that can be empirically measured. And when they fall outside of that, you should have a process that says, "Well, what do we do then?" And it, oftentimes, I've seen investment committees that have a very good 
process going into the investment, and they maybe even have you know the very good ones also have a a reason for exiting a manager, but it's sort of the post-mortem analysis that sometimes falls short with, okay, what, what went wrong? Why did it go wrong? How can we avoid doing this again? It, that, that part's hard to set aside because it's sort of, it feels like a sunk cost or something. It's, you know, it, that opportunity came and went, we need to move on and, and put our money to work somewhere else now. It's hard to step back and say, okay, let's, let's sit there and think about all the mistakes we just made or why, why that didn't, didn't turn out well. So I think you have to, and every manager is going to be different, but I think you do have to to figure out, okay, what, what, when is enough enough? When is this manager? What, you know, what does style drift look like? When is his process broken? When is the strategy just not working anymore? And it's going to be different for every manager. But that's something that the more time you spend on on the front end, mm-hmm. the easier it is to to take the appropriate action on the back end. Mm-hmm. Do you have a specific approach on this or? Yeah, I, I mean, when when managers underperform or outperform, you want to know why. And we've had situations where, or a situation where a manager had done extremely well, was supposed to be one type of strategy, turned out to be another, and it imploded. That does happen. I, I think, in some respects, managed futures may be a little different than some of the other hedge fund strategies. In that, as long as you understand and you have confidence in the model, and the model, the modeling process remains robust. And if it's explainable why a manager is underperformed, that, that can be very, very reasonable. You worry, you know, in hedge funds, what makes, you know, hedge funds somewhat unique is that you, you also have to worry about the stability of the platform and the organization. My impression, which may be completely wrong, is that you don't have necessarily the same business volatility in, in some of these managed futures firms, there seems to be a lot of them that have been hanging around for a long time with four or five hundred million dollars that maybe an equity long short manager couldn't or a credit manager couldn't. But we want to see, you, you know, you know, we want to understand why a manager has underperformed and if the process uh, and their modeling remains robust. If, I think if something is stagnant for a long period of time, that would give us some real pause and concern. But if, if a manager continues to do research, continues to more deeply understand the markets that we're in, you know, you go through periods of underperformance, it happens. Sure. No, absolutely. I want to shift gear a little bit and just talk about something that has been in the press recently. And it, it comes from Ray Dalio that I'm sure many investors uh, are familiar with as as a founder of the most, the largest and, and most successful hedge fund in the, that we have right now. And of course, one of his big arguments right now is that there is a big crisis coming. We're in the seventh or eighth inning. And, you know, one, two years from now, we should expect a, a really big crisis in, in the world. That's how I understand his his interviews, at least. So I'm just curious to know whether things like this kind of have an influence how you think about your portfolio going forward or are you not really paying too much attention to this kind of analysis from from people like that anyone sure i mean if you just have your head in the sand all the time and don't listen to people that are obviously intelligent and smart then that's probably not a good idea what I would say about the way that we approach this, and I hope this isn't a cop-out, is that since we're such a large a large pot of money, it's very hard to move on a dime. 
And so we have to have structural allocations to things that we know will outperform whenever there is a crisis. And we have to have the governance structure to tolerate potentially a low carry during large equity, large risk on rallies, that kind of thing. So I think we just kind of lived through 10 years of mostly up markets through disappointing returns from from your chief risk mitigator, which would be hedge funds. And if you have the governance structure to see it through and to and to keep that portfolio in place, then I think you should have a, a high chance of outperforming, you know, just straight old 60-40. You know, next time there is a situation like like Mr. Dalio's uh, describing. So, you know, can we can we suddenly, you know, you know, allocate two billion more to risk mitigating hedge funds in the next three months? No, that's that's not our that's not within our ability. But we've got the protection there. We think that we need when when that does happen because we're not market timers. It's an excellent question. You know, we have for the last three or four years spent time, we spent a lot of resources and time increasing. We've gone from zero to 20% of our book in, you know, four years in these types of strategies. And we'll probably inch a little bit higher, you know, not necessarily. I mean, one of the ways you can mitigate what Mr. Dalio's outlook would be is to hire Mr. Dalio. As, as, as we recently have, I, I can't comment on whether or not what he's articulating will occur. Uh, our view on this is, you know, we don't think that structurally the United States, the American markets are a problem, unlike in 1999 and 2006, which were very obviously a problem. And it's really, human nature is really interesting because if you go back and you look at the Schiller data, you can, from Robert Schiller's website, you can download it. And I've done this, go back to like 1870 in a spreadsheet. And you actually find out, I think there's 13 different episodes during that time period where you've had a 30% or more real decline in the value of stocks and the returns from stocks. And in every single case except one, it's been spaced out by at least a decade. And we had two of those in 2002 and 2009, 10, like in there. And throughout history, that hasn't happened. And it's so deeply embedded into people's minds that this is a common way now of how financial markets work. We don't think that that that's a normal case. That's not our base case. We don't see imbalances that we saw, which were obvious, so maybe you didn't know how it was going to play out in 1999 and 2006. We don't see them. The imbalance of what we worry about are, are what's going on in China and what's going on in Europe in terms of the currency, but not what's happening here in the U.S. The worry here in the U.S. is, is that there's an incredible amount of negative convexity in the market built up through the, the unwinding of quantitative easing. And we saw that back in the last quarter. That was as much a reaction against the unwinding and the tightening of, of, of interest rates. But how exactly it plays out, I have no idea. And so what we're looking is anticipating some sort of bear market. And then what do we do when we're in the bear market? So at the beginning of this podcast, you know, we said we're starting to look at risk assets and starting to map out three, four, five moves ahead. What do we do when all of this happens? Mm. Any influence on your side, Jane? Yeah, I think there are two, two, two ways to look at it. And one is there's that the phrase you hear all the time is, well, nobody 
nobody knows when the next recession is. No one knows when the next stock market crash is. Like if we if we did, then we would always find a way to avoid it. So that may tempt people to just say, well, I'm just not going to bother. I'm just going to go along the equity markets and, and never look back. But you know, the reality is you often have, after, after those events happen, somebody does a lot of research on it and you say, oh, look, there, there was a lot of leverage in the system or suddenly there was a massive illiquidity and here's why, here are who the market players were and here's where the, there's a crowded, massive crowded trade going on here. This regulatory change happened and people had to get out and they all got out at the same time. So there's a way, because we always have the hindsight benefit and, and all these crises seem very explainable after the fact, that means there's always going to be an endless supply of people trying to figure out when the next one's going to come. So there, there's sort of two competing philosophies. There's ones you can't predict them, and, and, but other people's, you know, really trying to find it. Ray Dalio obviously managed the, the credit crisis. He managed his firm through the credit crisis very well and is a smart guy. And he's spent a lot of time researching, you know, the debt crisis and credit crises in general throughout history. So I think it's always worth, you know, listening to smart people who have proven themselves through their performance, through their their leadership of, of their firms over time to see what lessons can we learn from it. You know, there may always be something different uh, up ahead. It always looks a little bit different, but sometimes, you know, it, it's a cliche, you know, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So there's, there's, it's worth, you know, having an academic view. It's worth talking to smart people to try to understand what it is. At the end of the day, for most people, right, if you're just going to give one, you know, if you're just teaching a class to to the general lay people of the market, you probably just just be diversified, right? <laughs> Try to really understand what diversification is back to kind of my concept of the spectrum, right? As markets start to kind of unwind, you need to broaden your sense of what uncorrelation, you know, non-correlation looks like or what diversification looks like and really be, you know, really have that managed futures exposure to balance out equity. Not, not that it's going to be a hedge as we talked about earlier, but just, over time, over several cycles, that uncorrelated nature is, is going to create a better end portfolio than just being concentrated in one asset class. Sure. I want to tag on what Trent said. I think the most important thing is to have an asset allocation that's responsive to, to various environments. But like Trent said, you need to be ready whenever the market gives you a big opportunity, either by having the staff that can diligence certain certain trade ideas that are dislocated or having a selection of managers who can respond. Because if you if you just let the let the crisis happen to you and just hope you compound out of it for whatever reason, you're gonna miss some huge opportunities. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, living through the worst financial crisis of our lifetimes really happened over nine months. It didn't happen. It really started to roll over in August of 2008 and in March of 2009. And then you looked at, you know, the tech bubble essentially started to roll over at the end of 2000 and it went till, you know, October 2002. So you had one was nine months and one was 20 months. That's not a long period of time. And so, so I think that you have to be prepared for these things and react to them because, you know, these bear markets can be, you know, they, they can go down a lot. But historically, they really haven't, you know, they don't last all that long unless you have a protracted economic problem, which I don't I don't see in this country, at least not here. Sure. I want to be respectful of your time. And I've got a couple of items left that I think would be interesting to hear your view on. If we look at the investment environment in the last 10 years, interest rates have been low. 
So when you look at a strategy like private equity, it's given managers a chance to get cheap leverage for a long time and returns have been good. In part, maybe perhaps they don't have to to market their own positions all the time. But in the hedge fund world, returns in the last 10 years haven't been great. And in some strategies, the low interest rates have further reduced returns. And, you know, as we've seen, you know, some late movers certainly in, in into these uh, alternatives have put in a lot of thought and scrutiny on fees. So I just want to hear your view a little bit where we where we are in the fee discussion after now a few years where certainly it's been in the media. Are we coming towards the end of of the pressure on on managers. I heard even earlier today, consultants are now under pressure on their fees. So maybe because I know you've got a a, a kind of an innovative way to to look at that. You started a few years ago, if my memory serves me right. So maybe Stephen, you could tell me a little bit about where you sit on on this discussion. Sure. So you're referring to our one or 30 fee structure, which we really started developing in 2016 and then kind of went a bit more public with it in 2017. And really it was a response to what had been a low return environment for hedge funds for a number of years. And what we realized was that, you know, when your hedge fund portfolio is doing, you know, 5% net and you break it down into what's the gross that the managers are making and what's the net that you're keeping, you suddenly discover that the managers aren't hurting nearly as much as you are, right? Especially when markets are doing double digits every year like they were and you're sitting at, you know, half of that return or less. We just discovered that in a low return environment, the traditional two and 20-ish type model breaks down, you know, for someone to to deliver three net to you and maybe they had a gross of, you know, six or seven and they kept more than half of the value add. We didn't feel like that was very fair. So... What we said was, all right, well, we could just go out and hammer down the level of fees on everybody, right? But that comes with a, you know, a whole raft of adverse selection issues. There's literally certain types of alpha that are reliable and very expensive to manufacture. So if you just go out and try and, you know, get, you know, push fees down, they'll tell you to pound sand and then you don't have access to that potentially very useful return stream. So what we said was rather than change the overall level of fees, We want to change the shape of fees. We want to set up a fee structure that when a manager does very well, we're happy to pay you above market rates. And when a manager doesn't do very well, then we want to be protected on the downside and we want our share of the alpha that is generated to be consistent. So what we decided was that we would would have a structure where in any given year, a manager would get the greater of the decided management fee or the performance fee as opposed to and. You didn't get both, you got one or the other. The easiest way to think of it is like, a, I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna pay you performance fee in a given year, but I'm gonna pay you an upfront 1% as a draw on that. And you have to make that up in performance fee dollars before you get any more performance fee. And what that really did was it said, you know, in low return environments, this makes my hedge fund allocation a lot more defendable to my investment committee, to my board, because I can point to it and say, Yes, it didn't do as well as we thought. Yes, we understand why. And yes, the managers are not getting, you know, really fat and happy and rich off of high fees, right? So that was really the impetus. 
We've been doing it for almost three years now. We have about 75% uptake in our portfolio, and we've already realized significant savings from having implemented it. The other, the one other thing I would I would mention that we did was instead of paying performance fees on absolute returns, we've uh, switched that to an alpha basis only. So if a manager is you know 0.5 long S and P 500, they get paid on their value add relative to the beta delivery. So. It's been a big, big shift for us in thinking, but it's been successful so far. Sure. Trent, what is your thinking on fees and how has that evolved on your side? Yeah, we're first state off. I mean, a couple of things. First of all, you know, obviously we always like lower fees. Who doesn't? Everybody wants to pay less for something. I think that's human nature, but we're not necessarily averse to paying fees, you know. The, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are upset that you pay high fees to these very rich guys, and and that's just not fair. Well, you know, everybody uses Microsoft Office, right? And you're paying the, one of the richest men in the world something with 98% profit margin on it. So I can get you a spreadsheet for free, or you can buy Excel for a 98% profit margin. Are you better off net by paying that 98% margin or going for free? So, so I don't. I'm not necessarily averse to it. Having said that, I do think that in hedge funds for a long period of time, LPs have paid very expensive fees for beta, and I think that those managers which can create alpha should get paid well for it. But those managers which get paid beta should not be. And I, you know, you know, I can commend Steve and what they're doing at Texas Teachers because. You know, the, the idea that, you know, if, if you have half exposure to the S&P 500 and you're half volatility and whatever beta you think you are, you shouldn't be paid if you can't generate whatever risk adjusted return the market's giving you. So so I, I don't necessarily, for example, expect equity long short funds to outperform the S&P 500. I do expect them to outperform on a risk adjusted basis. I think that's perfectly fair. Our work suggests that equity long short managers, and I'll pick on them for a minute, have created value. The problem is, is that in the fee structure, they take all and more of it. So, you know, over the last 10 years, this group has underperformed the S&P 500 or Russell 3000, whatever you want, on a risk-adjusted basis, on a sharp basis. That's just not acceptable. So I think that that has to change. But I also think that the, the opposite could happen is that for those managers which have a truly unique alpha generating machine, fees actually may go up. I don't want that to happen, but that might be the, that's what might happen because you've got $3 trillion allocated to hedge funds. A lot of people questioning this, this allocation, and some of that may flow into the areas which are generally truly value creating and away from areas which are not. Yeah. It's almost unbelievable that it got to this point that it's, 2019 and people are still paying performance fees on beta. How did that happen? Right. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's changing, to, right? That we were, that's why we're talking about it here. There is a lot of pressure on, on the fee structure managers are taking. And, and I'm a free market guy, right? So I'm all for it. If, if a manager is not delivering alpha, you know, he's either going to people who still like the strategy are going to ask him to give it to them for nothing, you know, or as little as possible. If he's producing alpha, then then he can take or leave the money, and, and he'll he'll be fine either way. You know, there'll be enough people look, who are willing to pay that price for what he or she is is delivering. 
So I think you know free market forces are going to resolve a lot of this. Sometimes it takes a while. Uh, you know, you know sometimes people make an investment and and it's just hard. To, that relationship has been cultivated over years, and 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 these cycles can take five to ten years maybe to before you reach that equilibrium where they should be, where managers are being paid what they should be. But if if there's so much pressure, the problem is there's a lot of pressure that's like media generated as well. It's not purely just pressure from investors saying I, I don't, I'm tired of paying this or I don't think you got you've earned it. If you're big enough like like you guys are, you can structure creative. You can do manage accounts. You can structure creative bespoke fee structures just for yourself. For for the masses, they're sort of either at the whim of whatever people like you are paving the way for them, and they, they're just picking up whatever the market is giving them. But the media is really hounding hedge funds and, and fund managers and, and suppressing the fee structure. The, the danger there is you eventually just push all the money to people who can, you know, the, the large multi, multi, multi billion dollar fund managers who, who can afford to charge very little, just a small management fee and no incentive fee for their product because they have $20 billion and they're, and they're fine with that. But what if that happens, which is sort of, to some extent what you see, you've seen the trend towards the people who are able to gather assets. Or, you know, if you have five billion, you can get to seven and ten billion pretty easily. If you have fifty million, it, it you may never get to a hundred million. It's it's when once you get to a certain critical mass, it's just so easy to go and grow larger and larger, and that allows you to be able to charge a smaller fee. That's the trend that seems like has been happening. And the problem is then you squeeze at all the emerging managers. It's very hard for somebody to get started in this industry. And I think we need their input. We need their creativity. We need new programs and new managers out there being innovative and entrepreneurial and, and, and trying their, their best at, at creating alpha. And they're, they're never going to get off the ground. You know, it costs so much today to start a, a trading business to start a CTA to start a hedge fund. They're just the regulatory and compliance burden on them is so overwhelming. You know, I fear that those those people are going to get squeezed out. So I've been seeing a lot more just in the last two three years. Even I mean, it's been around for for much longer than that. But I, I see more and more investors who are seeding emerging managers, which I love to see because then you can kind of create whatever fee structure works to get those guys off the ground and get them to 100, 200 million. You know, to whatever that, depending on the strategy, whatever that tipping point is, where then they can go after more institutional assets and grow. So as long as there's a healthy environment for small startups to kind of get planted and start growing, you know, I, the fee structures hopefully will follow and work themselves out in the free market way. You know, if you can earn it. So I've, I've seen a lot of the emerging manager programs. You see a lot of news about this. Do you see a lot of money going into? Things like CTAs, which are comparatively much more expensive to run than like an equity long short emerging manager, or is the capital not flowing there? Yeah, I think you're correct on what you're seeing. I don't. I don't think CTAs are, are getting as much. I, and you guys might be able to speak to. I, you know, I'd be curious to know if you guys have dedicated emerging manager programs. And it's funny when when I was at Efficient Capital Management, we thought an emerging manager was sort of like, you know, hundred million, two hundred million, maybe <laughs> under hundred million. And a lot of pension funds that I've talked to, their emerging manager programs like a billion and you know, like or something. So it's very different terminology. Two, two billion two, and under. Two billion <laughs> and under, right? So I, you know, it's you know, terminology gets lost. But yeah, I don't. So I don't know. I mean, you guys might. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, the, on from the ones I've seen, it tends to be 
if there might be a macro manager in there. Yeah. Like one out of 20, 20 managers might be managed futures. I, I have yet to see a small CTA in any of these portfolios. Just an observation. Do you think it's performance driven? Do you think it's... I think it's it's a lot easier to wrap your mind around what an equity long short manager is doing, which is probably why the, the space is a bit more commoditized anyway. And so if you've got... If you're a small like startup CTA, you probably have to differentiate yourself somehow relative to the big players because otherwise somebody's just going to go buy medium to long-term trend from one of the blue chip names. And so that just requires a lot of education that maybe what, an emerging manager program might not have the time it, to do. And that's exactly it. I mean, we actually, uh, our only fund of funds program is actually in managed futures. And one of our managers does seed, but they have that specialized mm-hmm. knowledge. You'd have to be. Yeah. And, and and they've done very well at it. They've been quite successful at it. And they've, been, right. and they've gotten good economics at it. But they're specialists. They've done it forever. Right. Good. I've got one sort of more business type question and then maybe a, a, a little bit of a different question to end this conversation. We've talked a lot about the risks. We've talked a lot about how you navigate the environment. But I also just very quickly just want to hear where you see some opportunities that excite you at the moment when you look at the landscape. So maybe, Trent, I'll come to you first and just very quickly, what excites, excites you right now in, in this alternative space? Well, I'm probably more excited now than I have been for a long time simply because, you know, we think that we're entering into a bear market. Mm. And I've already mentioned a few yeah. things like the higher risk equity. The one area that is really intriguing is the triple B section of the investment grade bond market. There's now $3 trillion or so mm-hmm. of triple B bonds. It's, and it's up some like 300% or something in the last 10 years. And a lot of that's with really light indentures and with really high leverage. I think that a trillion dollars, I think I read a trillion dollars has, you know, has leverage at like 3.2 of times, which is the same as the double B junk. Right. You, you know what I mean? And a lot of that has been raised for for financial engineering and mergers and buybacks and things. So you've actually got a lot of really good businesses with, with, with lousy balance sheets. And the microstructure of the market has really changed where you don't have the banks sitting in the inventory, all mm-hmm. this stuff. Instead, it's mutual funds and ETFs and some of it, people like us. But that's a really interesting thing because you could see gaps really, really open up in the bond markets. You, you, you had really wide bid-ask spreads in January, February of 2016 in the loan market. You might see that again in, in, in the corporate bond market, and it could be massive. I mean, it, it could be hundreds of billions of dollars. And so that could be one of the best risk-adjusted returns we see. Whenever we go into a recession, maybe we ban recessions, never going to happen again. But when that happens, it could be just a really, really interesting opportunity. Sure. Jake, where, where does your sort of excitement lie? Yeah, sure. Maybe it's nothing too novel stuff everyone's heard before. I think, you know, we're progressing technologically at such an exponential rate. It's just astounding when you see all the, all the new things that are coming up. You know, so... Crypto is something obviously everybody's heard. It was an explosive topic everywhere I went. Everyone was, you know, had another ICO and what, it was just well way overplayed. And, and as those markets sort of crashed, people sort of stopped talking about it. But I think like the tokenization of, of assets is still a really interesting thing that sort of has gotten swept 
a little bit to the side because of cryptocurrencies, but tokenization as a as a technology, right, or as a as a new way to get access to to assets and slice things up and track things and and so forth. I think that's an interesting thing in the world of sort of biotech and pharma and whatnot. I mean, I think there's the stuff we're doing with the gene biome project and curing cancers, and I think there are a lot of things that that our children won't have to deal with that our our parents have had to deal with because because of what we're doing, the innovation that's happening in that space. Also, I think just I know we've sort of re, reverted a little bit uh, from the the globalization push that sort of happened over over the last decade or two, but I think there's still a lot that's happening in terms of, you know, you think of certain areas that they didn't have to build the infrastructure that we did in America or in Europe. They can kind of leapfrog straight to mobile technology, satellite technology and so forth. And so you're putting a lot of powerful computers into the hands of people who who have not had any technology at all. And and just having, you know, gaining access to the, to the billions of people in the world. I mean, I, there's so much brilliance out there that's untapped that I think technology is going to unlock and what that does who knows what but certainly in, in frontier markets and emerging markets uh, you're seeing a lot of one of the things we invest in, in our multifamily offices is, is microfinance and and that's that's an interesting space we're seeing a lot of a lot of small rural areas really turning around because of the opportunities that technology is bringing to them and, and capital is bringing them too, right? You know, that's why it's open markets are good. And if you can bring capital to places where the people have ideas, they just don't have the capital to get off the ground. I think there's some interesting things happening there too. So Sure. Stephen, what's getting your attention at the moment? Yeah, I'll maybe restrict my, my comments to, to maybe the hedge fund space since um, I've kind of covered the globe as far as <laughs> opportunities. So the things, the things I really like right now are retrocession reinsurance, which is sort of like the peak of the peak risk. You've had a meaningful contraction in that market that wasn't that big, big enough to get big enough to start with. And there's a number of players with big balance sheets that are pretty advantaged in that space. You saw rates go from, call it, mid-single digits two years ago to mid-double digits yeah, or, yeah, in the teens now. I think that's a big opportunity. I'm a little bit of a homer, but alt-CTAs, especially down cap, I'm a big believer in. I think you still... You still have a really good shot at having a good carrying return, you know, mid single digits in normal times. And then we've seen those CTAs respond during really good times for, for other CTAs as well. So our experience with that has been pretty positive. And then just from an alpha perspective, the opening of the onshore Chinese equity markets is a big deal. And we've been putting a lot of money to work there. Typically has to be in a long only format or something that's got beta sensitivity, but uh, to the extent that you can fit it in your asset allocation, it's an extremely liquid and extremely inefficient space to try to pick stocks. You know, do I want to pick stocks in the U.S. or do I want to pick stocks mm-hmm. in onshore China? I think I know what, know where I want to be. Okay, so as we start to wrap up this wide-ranging conversation, I want to come back to each of you one last time and just ask you a more personal question, just so our listeners get a chance to experience this side of you as well. So so here goes. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? And also, what reading do you almost never miss? So let me stay with you, Stephen, on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, 
Outside of work and family, if I get free amount of time, I like to drive out to the desert in West Texas, where <laughs> there it's there's nobody living out there. If you ever saw it, you'd, you'd understand why. <laughs> it's very beautiful, but it's it's very harsh. And I like to go out to the like Big Bend National Park, spend some time out in the desert, camping and backpacking, or up in the mountains there. That's my favorite hobby. And as far as the reading that I never miss. I think I'll have to be boring and say I read the Bridgewater Daily Observation every day. Probably a good choice. What about you, Trent? I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not, but I have evolved into a whiskey collector. So those of us who are involved in this this little subculture like to go whiskey hunting. Mm -hmm. And so I have developed or created or, or have a collection of 140 bottles of whiskey. And I'm not yeah. sure if that's a good thing or not, but it's 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 a lot of fun. I guess the, the thing that I never miss is basically anything by Michael Lewis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just I'm just reading the Undoing Project right okay. now. Yeah. You know, I, I I read Myers Poker five times when I was a kid, and mm. ever since then he's always been my favorite author. Absolutely, good choice. Okay. Uh, you, your question threw me off. I, I thought maybe you were talking about the quantum realm. So. I have seven children, so outside of work and family, I didn't, I didn't think there was. I didn't think that that was a frontier I haven't explored. I, I like soccer. Uh, I like I love outdoor sports, skiing, snowboarding. I just haven't done any of those things in like 20 years, but I do I do enjoy them when I get to them. And reading, I, I'll go boring too. I, the Wall Street Journal, I still think, is a really well written uh, magazine, and I like the opinion page too. I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting and good writing in that section. So. Fantastic. Okay. And now I also just wanted to end up with asking you if there was any question you wanted to ask each other or if there's anything you felt that I left out you want to bring up as we come to a close. Does State Board of Florida do any internal? You know, thinking about that? Internal hedge funds. Yeah, or common factor type stuff. You know, there's a lot There's a lot of big pots of money that are looking to potentially bring certain types of strategies in-house. Curious how you'll look at that. Uh, not in hedge funds, no. I mean, we, we will, I think that risk premia is a big deal, yep. I think. And thus far, I, we, we've done a little bit of that. I think it's going to become a much bigger deal in the next five years. I think if you can do it in-house... I think that that's very beneficial. Right. We do it already in our in our global equities, where we where we have factor investing in global equities, but we're not set up to do all that across the other markets. Yeah, I think a lot of big pots of money want to do it, but it requires they realize it requires a lot of staff. So you just either it, have to hire and and do that, or or it's a certain le- there's definitely a certain level of expertise because we did we've talked to people right. who have done that, and yeah, that's that you're right. We we don't have the internal resources to do that yet. Great question. Stephen, Trent, and Jake, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and opinions on today's topics. I really appreciate your openness during our conversation. It is so important to have practitioners like you to share these ideas because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And to all our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues 
and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up on the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in managed futures. From me, Nils Kostrup-Larsen, and our sponsors, CME Group and the Managed Fund Association, thanks for listening, and I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. And in the meantime, go check out all the amazing resources you can find on cmegroup.com as well as toptradersroundtable.com. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.